0: just the best literature. Well, hello again everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Now, with me in the studio today, as always is my producer Mr. Dan Arnfield. Say good afternoon, Dan. <laughs> good afternoon. <laughs> it's happy to have you here. Well, I just want to tell everyone that I am I am very excited to have a comment to read today. And this is from Lisa from down under. And so so uh All of you people out there listening, now, if someone from Australia can write some comments, maybe you can write some comments as well. But here's what uh, Lisa tells me. Firstly, I want to thank you for all the effort you put into your shows. As a household that really enjoys books, we really appreciate a show like yours. I have an 8-year-old son that has the same love for books as I do, and is really interested in the story of Winston Churchill. Thankfully, we were able to sort through the propaganda books that they have in our local libraries now, and found a lovely biography on Winston Churchill written for young teens. My son is currently devouring it. Then I came across your current episodes on Winston Churchill, which prompted me to have my son listen in as well. And so I'm really happy to hear that parents are having their children listen in. And uh, uh, there's more to come yet here, but but uh, I really want this program for even homeschoolers. And uh, all of you can listen to it. It's free to you. It doesn't cost you anything. And it would help them. He says, obviously, she goes on to say, obviously, a lot of it was a bit over his head as he only is seven, nearly eight. But it did make me think how nice it would be if you could maybe on occasions do some episodes on books for the young to mid-teens. Now, at uh, least I do plan to do that even in this series. And uh, uh, as soon as we get finished with this, uh, this uh, charming biography, uh, I th- we're going to get into some other books on the teen level. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll uh, talk about those as we go along. And she goes on, firstly, it would be great to get some guidance on the kind of books my son should be reading to hopefully help him grow into a loving leader and provider. And also, Lisa, I will think about this, and I will uh, develop a list, I think, that could help as well. She goes on to say, "As, uh, as a lot of the books nowadays really put down strong and courageous boys. And secondly, I really would be excited to have the young people my son especially, to get into books and love them. So thank you for all the effort you put into these shows and helping to keep the love of good literature alive in the hearts of men. And she says, uh, you know, have a wonderful day. And so uh, I do have a wonderful day most days. And so especially I love doing this program, and I think it is. Uh, it, it not only helps me as a literature teacher, but it also uh, inspires me to help others as well. Now, for today's program, I'm going to continue discussing highlights from Chapter Six, titled Cuba. And uh, remember this from the last time we had the the, uh, the program. And uh, I'm going to go back to page eighty-one and just read just read a couple lines just to maybe bring you back into the whole situation. But but also want to to uh, just emphasize what a great writer Winston Churchill really was. And he did love poetry, by the way, and uh, he loved Lord Byron, and I bought a huge Lord Byron book that I hope to use uh, a little bit of it sometimes also during this this, uh, series. But but here's what he wrote, and uh, he said, I have no doubt that the Romans planned the timetable of their days far better than we do they rose before the sun at all seasons except in wartime we never see the dawn <laughs> and so so here here Winston Churchill is lamenting on let's say maybe the, the 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 British idea of doing things and it's still the it's still you know for a lot of Americans you know they don't get up before the dawn but i do know that very successful people in america do get up before dawn and uh, we just had uh general michael Flynn here at the at the armstrong college and he got up before dawn and went swimming and uh you know that that's not something i would necessarily do but uh, but he got up and did it and really set an example for all of us he said sometimes we see sunset <laughs> so he's talking about the british you know that that uh, sometimes they uh they don't see the that we never see the dawn and sometimes we see sunset so there's a lot of humor in this book as well. He said, the message of the sunset is sadness. And the message of the dawn is hope. And so, so I mentioned that before and, and Winston Churchill really did love poetry and, uh, uh, he, he's a little poetic here. And at times he really does get a little poetic in, in the, the, the story or the history here. And so, uh, uh, let's now slip over to page 82 and uh, i think this is uh again it it it's just a a great chapter i think uh, uh he really he really does uh, he really does bring you into the book by being so charming i mean he really does bring you into it and you you just love it i just love reading it but uh, I, I uh, identified this section in my own notes. It's called Getting Friendly with Our Spanish Hosts. <laughs> and so so uh, uh, I think it's interesting that, that he was a man of personality, and he really did enjoy other people. So this is the very top of page 82. He says, Meanwhile, we got quite friendly with our Spanish hosts, and speaking execrable French in common Though from different angles, we managed to acquire some understanding of their views. And so, so Winston Churchill could not speak Spanish. The Spanish didn't understand English, so they spoke in French. And it was really bad French, by the way. And that's what he's saying. But still, they learned about each other. He says, the Chief of Staff, Lieutenant Colonel Benzo, for instance, on one occasion referred to the war which we were fighting to preserve the integrity of our country. Now, it's interesting here remember now that Winston Churchill is is by the time we get through this chapter we he realize he's going to be 21 so he's still a pretty young man and remember he is a child of the Victorian era he's a child of the empire and uh you know the british were very proud of their empire and should have been because it it did uh help a lot of countries and a lot of people but but uh, uh he, he said that that uh, he was really surprised by some of the things that were said. He said, for instance, the chief of staff, Lieutenant Colonel Benzo, for instance, on one occasion referred to the war which we are fighting to preserve the integrity of our country. And so he's talking, the colonel was talking about Spain. They're really concerned about their country. And there really was a Spanish empire, by the way. And uh, that's why we have a lot of uh, Spanish in South America. But notice what Winston says. He's learning. Here, here he is. He's a young, you know, uh, young soldier. He's he's in Cuba. He's in a different country. He says, "I was struck by this. I had not, no doubt, owing to my restricted education, quite realized that the other nations had the same sort of feeling about their possessions as we had in England, and always been brought up to have about ours. They felt about Cuba. It seemed." just as we felt about Ireland. And so so here you have the Spanish Empire, they have this beautiful island in the Antilles, Cuba. The Cubans want to separate from Spain, and it bothered the nation because they wanted them to stay part of Spain. And then Winston Churchill says it's the same problem they had with Ireland, is that the Irish wanted to you know, be separated from, from England. And of course, that that problem uh, really with Ireland and Scotland is still, I think, probably underneath the surface. And uh, you know, Scotland wanted to uh, be separate from England as well. And so, so what I think is interesting, just I want to point out here, is that that even as this young soldier, he was learning about the world, and uh, it, it was really it was really shocking to him that the Sp- Spanish people felt about Cuba like they felt about Ireland. He really he really learned something there. He said, uh, he said, this impressed me much. I thought it rather cheek that these foreigners should have just the same views and use the same sort of language about their country and their colonies as if they were British. <laughs> you know, how could the Spanish be British? How could they think like us? He says, however, I accepted the fact and put it in my mental larder. Now, if you don't know what a larder is, it's like you're it's like uh your your kitchen cupboard. It's like okay, he put this idea in his mind and then obviously years later he write about it in his book. You know, it's it's interesting. It says hitherto I had secretly sympathized with the rebels, or at least with the rebellion <laughs> But now I began to see how unhappy the Spanish were at the uh at the idea of having their beautiful pearl of the Antilles torn away from them, and I began to feel sorry for them. So, so here he's telling them. I mean, here he goes over to help fight a war, and actually, he he, he would really like to help the rebellion. <laughs> that that sounds like something in Star Wars. You know, it it just it just uh, it, I think it was really. I mean, I have to admit, I chuckled. I chuckled on this a lot. <laughs> you know, so so it really is. It really is kind of funny. But but the other thing that Winston was learning about is how to deal with different different nations. With I mean, obviously, it, it it's a different mindsets, and yet he was learning about it. And and uh, you know, it, it, to me, it's just it's just really really fascinating. Uh, he he went on to say, you now he felt sorry for them, and here here's really, really why he felt sorry for them and it it's uh it just shows how how uh let's say what a grasp that uh Winston Churchill had on war and and how to fight a war and how to win a war and uh you'll see in a few minutes I just want to show you that he was really being prepared to you know help with World War One and help with World War Two, just as a young boy and uh Uh, He he said they really felt sorry for them, but here's why. He says, we did not see how they could win. Imagine the cost per hour of a column of nearly 4,000 men wandering round and round this endless, humid jungle, and there were perhaps a dozen such columns, and many smaller, continuously on the move. There were 200,000 men in all the posts and the garrisons or in the blockhouses on the railway lines. We knew that Spain was not a rich country, as such things then. We knew by what immense efforts and sacrifices she maintained more than a quarter of a million men across 5,000 miles of salt water, a dumbbell held at arm's length, and what of the enemy? So, this war with Cuba was costing Spain an immense amount of money. And look at all the soldiers they had there. It it is it is amazing. But but here it's just amazing to me that that he as a young man, a young soldier, just came out of training and he could analyze a situation and realize they're probably gonna to lose. To me that's he, he really was a genius with all these things. He goes on to say, all these elaborate precautions and powerful forces had been brought into being as a result of repeated disasters. And so he, he understood some of the history here. And this the Spanish kept going into disaster after disaster. And there's a reason for it. He, he just explains it here. He says, in these forests and mountains were bands of ragged men, not ill-supplied with rifles and ammunition, and armed above all with a formidable chopper sword called a machete. So he's saying, not only were their rifles great, the machetes were unbelievable. <laughs> you know, he said, he said uh, uh, you know, machetes are really, really uh, a, a cool tool. And he, he looked at it as part of you know, a weapon of war. And uh, both Dan and I had been on some campouts together in the winter, and uh, I, there was a couple times I had to you know, put my tent up and everything, and I didn't have a machete. And I had to go borrow a machete. And so for my next trip, I'm hoping to have my own machete so that uh, I can cut down all the, the the weeds and the junk and not have to be sleeping on top of them. Anyway, uh, he goes on to say about the machete, he said, to whom war costs nothing except poverty, risk and discomfort. And no one was likely to run short of these. <laughs> he said "There's machetes everywhere and it would be actually a lot less expensive for war. If you're all using machetes. So it says, here were the Spaniards, out guerillad in their own turn. They moved like Napoleon's convoys in the peninsula, league after league, day after day, through a world of impalpable hostility, slashed here and there by fierce onslaught. So not only were the rebels rebels, they were fierce. They were warriors. They knew how to use a machete. And uh, uh, you know they could get through, and, and essentially what he's saying is they could get through the landscape faster because they had the machetes. You know, if you, can you imagine taking two thousand men and you're walking through a jungle and they're trying to, you know, there's not necessarily a pathway. Someone has to make it for them, and so uh, so I, I think that was really, really very interesting. Okay, he goes on to say we slept on the night of October, November twenty ninth in the fortified village of Arroyo Blanco. We had uh, sent two battalions and one squadron with the main part of the convoy to carry provisions to a series of garrisons. The rest of our force, numbered perhaps 1,700 men, were to seek the enemy and fight. The 30th of November was my 21st birthday. So, so you wonder, why does he put November 29 in? Well, he wants to tell us that the 30th was his 21st birthday. And I think from the last program, you have to remember, what did he want most of all? He wanted to be in a war where he could hear the bullets whistle past his head. And, you know, he wanted the excitement of all of that. Well, he's going to get it. <laughs> he's going to get it here. He said, uh, he said, The 30th of November was my 21st birthday, and on that day, for the first time, I heard shots fired in anger and heard bullets strike flesh or whistle through the air. And so, so he's finally getting what he wants. He wanted it. Now it's his 21st birthday, and he's getting it. But we're going to find out. He really didn't like it. <laughs> so so he says, there was a low mist. And again, this is his great writing, by the way, those of you listening, understand these these paragraphs. He He really is very colorful. He says, there was a low mist as we moved off in the early morning. And all of a sudden, the rear of the column was involved in firing. In those days when people got quite close together in order to fight and used, partly any rate, large board rifles to fight with, loud bangs were heard, smoke puffs or even flashes could be seen. So can you imagine? This is it. He's waking up on his birthday. They're out in the middle of this mist, And all of a sudden, it's gone crazy. There's these loud guns, and there's there's smoke, and there's flamings, you know, flames coming out of the out of the front of the guns. He said. He said the firing seemed about a furlong away and sounded very noisy and startling. As, however, no bullets seemed to come near me, I was easily reassured. I felt now. This is really funny. This is great humor. I felt like the optimist who did not mind what happened as long as it did not happen to him. <laughs> so so that's a lot of humor. The mist had everything from view. After a while began to lift, and I found we were marching through a clearing in the woods nearly a hundred yards wide. This was called a military road, and we wended along it for several hours. The jungle had already encroached avidly upon the track, and the officers drew their machetes and cut down the branches or in sport, Cut in half the great water gourds which hung from them and discharged a quart of cold crystal liquid upon the unwary <laughs> so, so not only are they trying to clear the trail, some of the soldiers that have their machetes are cutting down gourds over friends' heads so that they could get you know totally slammed with water and so so it's 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 like, okay, this doesn't sound like war to me, this sounds like soldier fun and so uh, uh anyway uh he, he really he really brings that out and th- that's why i think it's such creative writing he said on this day we halted for breakfast every man sat by his horse and ate what he had in his pocket and and so the spanish were providing the food by the way he said i had been provided with a half skinny chicken <laughs> so so he says i was engaged in gnawing uh, on the drumstick when suddenly close at hand almost in our faces it seemed A ragged volley rang out from the edge of the forest. The horse immediately behind me, not my horse, gave a bound. There was excitement and commotion. A party of soldiers rushed to the place where the volley had been fired and of course found nothing except a few empty cartridges. Meanwhile, I had been meditating upon the wounded horse. It was a chestnut. The bullet had struck between his ribs. The blood dripped on the ground. And there was a circle of dark red on his bright chestnut coat about a foot wide. So this poor horse has been shot. And, and uh, it kind of wakes Winston up. He said he hung his head but did not fall. Evidently, however, he was going to die, for his saddle and his bridle were soon taken off of him. And so, so the, the soldiers, uh, they know the horse was hit pretty hard and he wasn't going to make it. So they made sure they got the saddle. He said, as I watched these proceedings, I could not help reflecting that that bullet which had struck the chestnut had certainly passed within a foot of my head. So, at any rate, I had been under fire. That was something. Nevertheless, I began to take a more thoughtful view of our enterprise than I hitherto had done. (laughs) And so, this is what he wanted. Uh, He thought, hey, this is my birthday. I get to be in a war. I get to be in a battle. And then he realized... That bullet was pretty close to my head, and I could be like the horse. I I have my brain shot out. And so uh, uh, I think it's it's just really great writing, and he's being honest with us. He said, all the next day we pursued the trail, the woods which before had borne a distant resemblance to an English covert now gave place to forests of bottle stem palm trees of all possible sizes and most peculiar shapes. And it said, three or four hours of this sort of country led us again to more open ground. And after fording the river, we halted for the night near a rude cabin, which boasted a name on the map. It was hot, and my companion and I persuaded two of the younger staff officers to come with us and bathe in the river, which encircled our bivouac on three sides. So, that is very British. You cannot go to bed without a bath. And so, so uh, if you can imagine, you know Winston Churchill and two friends, you know they uh, disrobed and they got in the water, and guess what happened? It says the bullets whizzed over our heads. It was evident that an attack of some sort was in progress. We pulled on our clothes anyhow, and retired along the river as gracefully as we might be, and returned to the general's headquarters. <laughs> When we arrived there was a regular skirmish going on a half mile away. The bullets were falling all over the camp. The rebels were armed mainly with Remingtons, and the deep note of their pieces contrasted strangely with the shrill rattle of the magazine rifles of the Spaniards. After about a half an hour the insurgents had enough and went off carrying away with them the wounded, the dead, which uh, with which it was hoped they were not unprovided. And so so uh, uh he got his he got his wish on his birthday. He was in a battle. He was also naked in the battle because <laughs> he had to have a bath. And so so it's really it's really pretty funny. I, I'm really glad he put all that in there. If I get to talk to him in the second resurrection, I'm gonna I want to talk about this this bath. Anyway, he goes on to say we dined undisturbed in the veranda and retired to our hammocks in the little barn. I was soon awakened by firing. So, so here they're in their little hut. They're going to go to bed. He's in his hammock. All of a sudden, the bullets start ripping through the hat, the thatch of the hut. So it's just a little hut. So the bullets are coming again. And, and this is really, really funny, everybody. Don't miss this page, page 85. It says, a bullet ripped through the thatch of our hut. Another wounded and orderly just outside. I should have been glad to get out of my hammock and lie on the ground. However, As no one else made a move, I thought it more becoming to stay where I was. I fortified myself by dwelling on the fact that the Spanish officer, whose hammock was slung between me and the enemy's fire, was a man of substantial physique. Indeed, one night, one might almost have called him fat. I have never been prejudiced against fat men. At any rate, I did not grudge this one his meals, Gradually, I dropped asleep, <laughs> and so this fat man he realizes his shield. <laughs> I'm not getting on the floor. I'm staying in bed. This guy, he's going to take the bullet. I'm not going to take it, and uh, uh, so I I think that is absolutely uh, just hilarious. And and it was Spanish officer too. It wasn't even English. So so uh, we don't want to call him a racist because he really wasn't. He really felt bad for the Spanish said, after a disturbed night, the column started early in the morning. A mist gave cover to the rebel marksmen, who saluted us as soon as we got across the river with a well-directed fire. The enemy, falling back before us, took advantage of every position, though not very many men were hit. The bullets traversed the entire length of the column, making the march very lively for everybody. At eight o'clock, the head of the Spanish column debouched from the broken ground in open country. A broad grass ride with a wire fence on one side and a row of little tr- stunted stunted trees on the other ran from the beginning of the plain to the enemy's line. On each side of the ride were broad fields of rank grass, waist-high. Half up to the ride, which was about a mile long, and upon the right-hand side was a grove of about a hundred palm trees. At the end of the ride and at right angles, it was low, long hill, surmounted by a, a rail fence and backed by dense forests, This was the enemy's position, which the general resolved immediately to attack. And so, so the the, 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 the point is, what I really want you to, to see here is that, that Winston Churchill finally got what he wanted. He finally wanted to be in a real war, with real fighting. And then he did kind of discover, it's really not all what it's cracked up to be. And so, uh, I'm going to let you read for yourself the rest of page 86. Page 87 is a map of of uh, Cuba, and it's really good to study where they were. And uh, they were near Santa Clara. And so now I'm going to end this, uh, this uh, discussion today with page 88. And uh, again, he writes now, As our column had now only one day's rations left, we withdrew across the plain to Jocatia. Spanish honor and our own curiosity alike being satisfied, the column returned to the coast, and we to England. We did not think the Spaniards were likely to win their war in Cuba to a speedy end and so so again, I think that just shows us how really how intelligent and how wise he was about war, and that uh, um, at 21 and uh that really did as we'll see as we go through the book i think it did get him ready to help the world with world war one and world war two well that's all the time i have for today's program on our next program we'll move on to chapter seven of uh churchill's charming book my early life now you can buy my early life at amazon.com you may uh, be able to also find a good used copy at abebooks.com, and I almost can guarantee you'll find a copy at AbeBooks. You may be able to find a copy in your local bookstore, and of course you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at JBLiterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature.